I wanted to start by saying thank you for listening, as well as for those of you who've been supporting Standard H by way of making purchases on the website. It's funny, I've had several people ask me if I'm a podcast that makes clothes or a clothing brand with a podcast. Though it is most certainly the latter, I'm just happy those of you who have discovered the brand at all, let alone enjoyed the products I make. If you don't mind leaving a review of the show through whatever app you're listening to this on, it will no doubt help others also discover the show and in turn the brand. And if I could ask a second favor, maybe tell a friend or two about Standard H. I couldn't be more proud of the community that's evolving, and all of you have been so great, be it through DMs on Instagram or the emails I've received. I'm a huge subscriber of the birds of a feather mentality and feel the best way to share a good thing is to include my friends. So if you could help share the pod, that would be awesome, and hopefully your friends will enjoy it as well. As always, thank you so much for the support. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. Brett King and I met roughly six years ago through golf in a roundabout way. I used to manage the Scotty Cameron Gallery in Encinitas, California, and Brett was a customer. Funny, I've met so many wonderful people working retail, and many of my best friends to this day have come into my life the same way Brett did. After chatting about putters and accessories, I later found out Brett designed helmets for race car drivers, something that intrigued me given I was about a year into starting Standard H as a side hustle. We immediately clicked, and much like Standard H, Brett's path has taken some twists and turns. We start our conversation somewhat existentially, and Brett allows a glimpse into his art background and how he maintains his artistry within an industry that's beginning to use more and more technology, as opposed to his handmade approach to helmet graphics. Brett and I had actually recorded during the pandemic, but we encountered some audio issues. Twice, in fact. So it was only fair for me to make my way to his current hometown of Las Vegas where we recorded. Making things even more fun, we got out for a round of golf earlier that afternoon with his awesome wife Tiffany and my buddy Jonathan. We had a blast and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too, so let's get into it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. There's definitely been a... An evolution of my perspective since we first met yeah that's true well tell me a little bit about that why don't we just start there well i don't know i i feel as human beings we live and learn and grow and evolve um some people more than others right you know which is fine um but I've found for myself that it's been an ever-evolving conscious effort to 
continue to gain more education about life, about relationships, about people, just about everything, you know, knowledge of, you know, random things, whatever it is. Right. And, um, and I feel that it's really served me well, you know? And so I think that's the thing as we, you know, go through this thing called life. Um, if you're not evolving, I kind of feel like you're just falling behind. You're dying. You yeah. are. I mean, I don't know if you're dying, but I mean, you're definitely falling behind right. and you're going to get swallowed up by life. And I don't want that. You know what I mean? I want to keep, keep growing. And, you know, I think it's super important. So cool. Yeah. Well, Brett, thanks again for coming back on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank uh, you for having well, me. Well, back on the show as far as you and I are concerned. Yes. <laughs> we won't go into it. Three times, third it. times the charm. Three times the charm. <laughs> but it's all good. Um, you grew up in, I know it's Canada. I'm struggling for the city. Winnipeg. Winnipeg, that's right. Born in, born in Winnipeg, yeah. And your parents did what for a living? So when I was a wee lad, my dad was a bodyman, so automotive bodyman and um, painter. Mm -hmm. And then my mom worked in accounting um, in the same car dealership. They both worked in a, a Chevrolet GMC car dealership in Winnipeg. Nice. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. And um, so my dad was, you know, a super badass, you know, bodyman painter and would just pump out work like it was crazy. And then, you know, my mom was, you know, doing numbers, you know, with all right. the all the girls in the accounting. So, yeah, that's kind of that was their background, basically. So was he painting beginning. like cars that had been wrecked, I guess? Yeah, I mean, just like any other body shop, you know, and cars come in and and um you know people getting wrecks or whatever yeah like straightening them fixing them up you know right. um which is funny because one of my earliest memories of when they worked in that um dealership in winnipeg um was a silver and black indy 500 corvette it was the indy 500 pace car you know no way isn't that crazy so um wait so what year was this? i think that was 78 if is I'm that not. a stingray then yeah yeah okay. it was like silver and black two-tone and it had i think it was like orange and black lettering on it sick it's so crazy to to think that all those years ago i remember that car so vividly and then you know here i was doing so much work with with the 500 and snake pit and all that stuff so right right kind of cool have you always been a corvette fan then no, I hate Corvettes. No. <laughs> really? I'm not into them. I'm, no. not, I'm not a Corvette guy either. No, but. I'm not into them. I, th I mean, I think this new one's pretty cool. Um, you know, the, the brand new one's pretty cool. But I mean, it looks so You much... don't think it looks like an amalgamation of well, like yeah, it's, it's... McLaren and Lamborghini and Ferrari? Well, yeah, I think time. it's 100% wannabe Ferrari. But, you know, sorry to all you Corvette guys out there. But um, but I mean, if, as far as Corvettes go, I mean, it's it's a nice car. I mean, it's an affordable, fast you yeah. know, always you has know, been, yeah. car. So, I mean, to each their own. Yeah. But, you know. 58, that's my year, Corvette. Ooh, yes. White walls. Ooh, yes. Those are very dope. Super beautiful. Yeah, no, that's that's a really nice car. Who was Brett in high school? <sighs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, in high school, I was, let's see, I was a little bit um I, I mean i was in a really good at art you know i i took you know th i think it was three different art classes um but i raced motocross at the time so i wasn't really super tight um with everybody at the school like i was you know i had i knew a lot of people and you know i but i didn't really hang out with those people were you traveling a lot then for motocross no, I mean, I would do, because I was in British Columbia, right? So, I mean, I would do, um, you know, all the local races in BC. You know, we would do the BC Championship Series. So, I would go to all those races, you know, over on the island and then, you know, in the lower mainland and whatnot. Right. And then we would go and do, um, you know, there was a couple races down in Bellingham, so at Hannigan. And then there was another um, race we would go to in uh, SIR in Seattle. So what bikes were you riding then? Uh, I originally started on a KX80, 
And then, yeah, when I was racing 125, I got to like 125 intermediate. I had like a 1990 CR 125. Okay. So, yeah, uh, quite a long time ago now. Right. <laughs> Which is crazy. No, that's cool. But Yeah, no, it's cool. So then, but you were also into bikes though, not like bicycles as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, it was weird because I started out, I was, my dad bought me like a BMX bike, you know, I think this was in probably 79 80 okay and um i had like this this uh, like an old redline mx2 and um well, redlines are sick back yeah it was pretty it was pretty cool and um that was right before we moved to south africa and so you know i had that and you know i would go ride in winnipeg there was these trails um called monkey trails you know so me and all my buddies we would go ride all these crazy trails you know, down by this kind of creek and, um, and then over we would ride our bikes at night. I mean, my parents, they would just let us out like all, like, I mean, I would be out till 10, 11 o'clock riding my bike, like, and you know, at freaking nine, 10 years old. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, it's completely different era, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and we would be trying to get chased by, you know, people we'd be like, you know, yelling at, you know, young teenagers and stuff like, Hey, you you know, like try to taunt them and get chased around on our bikes. And, you know, so it was, uh, it was pretty crazy, you know? So that's kind of, I started in BMX and my first BMX race I ever did was in, in, um, South Africa, which was crazy. And it was in a, on a soccer field, which was nuts, like on grass with like these little dirt mounds that they built. And, um, I mean, it was really just a sprint on grass, which is crazy when you think about it now, but Lots of tire slip, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty sketchy, you know. So I'd forgotten you moved to South Africa. What motivated you guys to do that? I don't remember. That's a good question that maybe my late father would be better to answer than me. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, we were told that it was, you know, at the time that it, my father's mother um, was, you know, she was ill. She was getting old and um, she had some heart issues and stuff like that. So they were saying that they wanted us to move over there, you know, until she kind of passed away at least so they could spend some time with her and see her and whatnot. So she already lived there. Yeah. Yeah. So she lived in, which is the weird part, right? We supposedly moved there because, you know, she was there and dying, but she lived in Port Elizabeth. Meanwhile, we moved um, to a town just outside of Cape Town called Gordon's Bay. Okay. And um, which is close to like Stellenbosch and Somerset West. We also lived in those towns. And, um, so yeah, so that's kind of why we went over there, but, uh, yeah, we were only over there for, I think like four years and then we moved back to Winnipeg, you know? So was, how old were you when you moved back? I think I was 12 or 13. Okay. I think I was 13. So you spent high school in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. High school in Canada. So we moved back, um, I think it was in 86. And then lived in Winnipeg for two years, and then we moved to British Columbia, um, you know, lower mainland, like, you know, Vancouver, um, in 88. And, uh, yeah, so I lived there until I was 24, and then I moved to California. Right. You know, so kind of been all over the Wait, place. Wait, did you go to university? I don't remember. No, no, I never did. So you were just doing art right out of high school? Yeah. And, and that was the weird thing. I mean, my folks didn't, you know, I, I wouldn't say like my parents were talented. Like my dad was a talented guy. He was really good with his hands. And, you know, my mom, it, it was funny. My mom was actually a pretty talented illustrator, but she didn't really do that at all when we were kids. She did a lot of sewing. Yeah. You know, so she kind of did something with her hands, you know, but my mom just really kind of was there for us growing up. Well, my dad just worked like a madman, right? You know? So, um, yeah, that's kind of how how that dynamic was. What were like the early art projects you would work on? Were they always kind of sp- sporty or like kind of like in school, like race cars and stuff like that, or were you like yeah, drawing I mean, other stuff or like yeah, what were you working on? Yeah, I mean, so in school, I mean, so I was always into like Matchbox cars and like Hot Wheels. You know, I was I was really always into that stuff growing up, and my dad watched Formula One. I remember like pretty religiously awesome um you know back in like the nigel mansell kind of senate eras and yeah you know which was kind of neat and um so i'd always kind of had like this um tie to racing and motorsports all growing up 
and then motorcycles like when we moved especially when we lived in south africa you know i had a dirt bike over there and my dad and i we would go ride around like the the vineyards and stuff like up in somerset west and yeah yeah you know i i had like jumps i would like trying to jump this janky ass <laughs> you know old bike that i had which is really funny but i always wanted to race motocross you know and i i just you know I don't know if we really had the the finances to do that as much as my dad just didn't really allocate finances for me to do that. Got it. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really what got me into BMX was because, you know, BMX was cheap. Right, right. You know, so I really took to that. So when we moved back from South Africa to Winnipeg, that's when I kind of started riding a lot more and, you know, did more BMX. And then we, when we moved out to British Columbia... Um, I ended up, my sister ended up dating this guy that, um, raced motocross and he had, you know, a CR 250 and I was, you know, maybe 120 pounds soaking wet, you know, little, you know, 14 year old or whatever I was. And I would go riding with him. Right. You know, and I was wearing like airwalks and jeans and, you know, I'd wear one of his jerseys and this helmet that was way too big for me and <laughs> you know and you take me out to the track and it was pretty cool though and that really kind of got my got my teeth wet to finally get into motocross because uh, to me you always kind of got to know somebody in a sport to kind of get into it sort of sure know? yeah yeah and um so that was kind of how how it started that whole thing and i you know my dad helped me buy a kx80 at the time and then i just started kind of racing and that's kind of how that all unfolded so that's cool that yeah, was kind of neat you know so what was your first job out of high school then um, so my first job, my very first job, I was in high school and I worked at McDonald's. No way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. Were you up front or were you in the back? Well, so McDonald's, and this is actually something, you know, I've, uh, that taught me quite a bit about systems, you know, if we <laughs> want to start talking about business, right? So uh, McDonald's is pretty incredible because I always remember their training system for their employees was pretty thorough i mean you know you'd started out i remember at the time you know when i first started there i think i was 15 when i started working there because in canada the starting age is a little lower yeah and so you started out working french fries and then they would move you into the back and so you'd be making burgers and then um then they would move you to the tills so you could work you know right cash register and then you know once you graduated from that you could work drive through so I ended up, you know, I, w- I think I worked there for about two years. And yeah, I, so I kind of went through all those stages. And um, but I mean, just learning. I, re- I remember at McDonald's was the very first time like my anxiety broke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which station was it? It was like making hamburgers, actually, like making like Big Macs. And I remember like being in the back because you would bust out like you could bust out to my if my memory serves me correctly. I mean, you would make like six Big Macs at a time and you would make them literally in three minutes. Well, so, it's funny because like it, when you tell me about that progression, that makes like so much sense. Right. Yeah. Because it's the least amount of responsibility yep. and like opportunity to screw it up. Yeah. Until yeah. like through the drive-through, because yeah. then when you're on the drive-through window, you just have to do all the money stuff faster. Well, exactly. Right. So like, there's less time. Yeah. To allocate. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. No, it was it was cool, you know, and and it taught me a lot. I mean, taught you how to work with a team, and it. Yeah. You know, it it taught me how to manage stress because it was freaking stressful, dude. I mean, sure. you're working, you know, in the back of McDonald's on a Saturday and there's a billion people coming through there, you know, and it's like, holy mackerel, we need, you know, we need 12 Big Macs. We need this, we need that. And you're just like, you want to pull your hair out. You're just like, ah, and then finally one day I just snapped. I was like, I'll get it done. Just take a deep breath, power through this as quick as you can. You can do right, it. Right. You know what I mean? And it kind of taught me a little bit of, you know, management of anxiety, you know, so to speak when it came to those kind of high intensity moments. And, um, which was interesting. It was a good life lesson at the time. My brain keeps going to the expression of too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Sounded like there wasn't enough cooks in in your kitchen. No, I mean, and again, that's McDonald's, you know, I mean, it's when you look at some of these places, I mean, another fantastic one that we keep hearing about is like Costco, you know, Mm -hmm. you think about, you know, we were, Tiff and I were at Costco the other day and we were talking to these people that worked there and they had worked there for 20 years. 
No way. And yeah, you think about that, right? You're working yeah. at Till at Costco for 20 years, and it's like, what is this company doing to retain people like that? Shit, you know? working anywhere for 20 years. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, unless it's, it's your own business. Yeah, right? I mean, it's really impressive. So, I mean, it, you know, and that, I think that's that's kind of rings back to what I said originally, you know, about about continually evolving and educating yourself and learning about, you know, these things. I mean, looking at these these massive businesses that are so successful. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. inspirational to to take a look at what they do, how they do it, how they're retaining people, how they train people, you know, and really when you look at it, I mean, there's a reason why they're as big as they are, you know, it's, they're smart, you know, they, they've culture def- too, I guess. Yeah. And you culture. Know? I mean, you know, you, people that work at companies like that for the most part, I think they're proud of it. You right. Know, they're proud to work at Costco They're I mean, they weren't shameful that they were saying that they worked there for 20 years. They were proud of it. Yeah. So, I mean, creating a culture like that is pretty impressive, you know? Uh, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, when did so. you start at felt bikes? So I started at Felt. Uh, originally, when I started at Felt, it was in 99. And um, I was kind of doing it um, from Canada, just a little bit of back and forth, you know. And then in 2000 is when we got um, me a visa and I started working full time. And So um, how did that all start, though? Like, how did they find you or how did you find them? So the way that started was in the late 90s, like from about 94. Uh, well, so I got into, I got back into BMX. So after motocross, I was doing motocross in the early nineties and then I got back into BMX in like 95. So I had started painting helmets literally right out of high school. And so I, you know, I painted a couple helmets. I painted my own, painted a couple for a couple friends and um and that and, was just a result of them asking you to do theirs because they saw yours yeah and it you know and it was they were cool you know and that was literally when troy lee was still like you know i mean he was known but he wasn't that well yeah, known. He wasn't today's troy lee no not not even close and so, or even I mean, late 90s troy lee yeah yeah and so i mean that was the thing i you know i saw what he was doing i was like wow that's really cool because it kind of ties in all the things that i love yeah By bikes and racing and art and you know the the whole thing it was it was really neat so i was like well you know i can i can paint stuff i can design stuff i can draw you know so that's really how it started and um so basically what had happened was then you know i had grown it you know from you know 16 years old and then um, when I started racing, or, or sorry, I started sponsoring the Canadian National Champion for BMX wow. in, in pro, because he was local. And um, so he was just a guy you knew. Yeah, he's like just a guy I met through the local guys at Langley. And um, so anyway, so he, you know, I painted his helmet and painted some like custom number plates for him and stuff. And that was in '95. And, um, so then I was like, shit, I'm, you know, I should get another BMX. You know, I love bikes and I've ridden all my life. And so I started racing again. And within a couple of years I was, I was racing pro. Wow. So, which was kind of neat. And, um, yeah. So then what had happened was then I started traveling down to Oregon and Washington to do some of the national, uh, ABA races. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, you know, the, the little entrepreneur in me was like, well, why don't you start painting, you know, helmets for these factory teams? So like, you know, I approached GT bicycles and power light and Haro and SE racing and park pre mongoose, like all the, all the big names. And I literally started painting helmets for all these guys. And, um, you know, I ended up painting, you know, all the national champs like Redline, you know, John Purse. And I did helmets for uh, Dennis McCoy and Dave Mira, you know, uh, Ryan Nyquist, all these super famous BMXers. And then North next, Carolina guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. And um, so then it ended up being, you know, that I was kind of like one of the premier guys uh, painting helmets in BMX. So when you were painting for so, factory teams they were paying you to do it i would assume yeah yeah yeah. but if you were painting dave mira's helmet yeah i was getting paid yeah so would his team pay you or did dave pay you Uh, no so haro would pay me okay yeah yeah yeah. so haro would say hey you know we want you to do a couple helmets for dave and 
you know, so that's kind of how that. He was always like all black though. Yeah. Well, this was when I painted his first. <laughs> Towards the end of his career. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So when I painted his first helmet, it was, it was like this white and blue with like these three red kind of stripes because they were sponsored by Adidas at the time. And I did these three little red stripes kind of on the the temple kind of area. Sure. And then I did this big kind of old English mirror written across the back. Oh, sick. It was really cool. Yeah. And then, so I did that helmet for him. And then I did a couple other helmets um, after I had moved down here in 2000 when he, he, he was sponsored by Dodge at the time. So I did these Dodge Ram helmets for him, which was kind of neat. But that was when I had kind of given up on painting when I started working at felt, which was funny. And, um, but you know, I still had the relationships with all these guys cause I was still in the bike industry. So that's well, and X games had already started by then, right? Yeah. So oh yeah. The, you yeah, were yeah, getting yeah. crazy TV time. Yeah. And that's the thing. It was, it's funny because I feel like I've always been under the radar, but I've always been there. Right, like you his helmet I mean? was recognizable, but nobody knew who painted it. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, because you know, again, it's you know, I felt like I got better at marketing this go around, mm. you know, when I started this this time, you know, doing helmets for, as as Brett King design, right. But back then, BK designs, you know, I was I was just a kid, you know, just painting stuff and you know paying my bills so I could go on trips and, you know what I mean. It was much more kind of a hobby than than an actual business you know money came in money went out (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah it's like (laughs) oh cool i could go you know race or i could go buy this thing i need or you know whatever it was cars (laughs) yeah yeah gi joe's i don't know what what were like those first helmets costing like what were you charging oh dude i was so undercharging for my work it was ridiculous right but, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't know any better. You know, I didn't have that education, you know, that business education and my f- family didn't have that education. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't really teach me. Right. And, um, so yeah, I mean a couple hundred bucks, I right. mean, it was very, very little amount of money. I mean, I was basically painting for free. I mean, well, how, yeah, I was going to ask how long would a helmet take? Well, and that's the thing too, back then, I mean, I was doing much simpler things, you know, maybe two colors with some hand painting, you know, accents on it or something like that, a little bit of airbrushing. Right. I mean, and they got, you know, more and more intricate as the years evolved, you know, and, but I mean, I don't know if I ever got over $600 to paint a helmet back in the day. I mean, very, very cheap. So those things are probably gems at this point, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, who knows what those could be worth in a few years <laughs> if people still have them, you know? So, so if you're only doing, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're only doing like two colors back then, mm-hmm. like now you go nuts with it, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, there's yeah. like all kinds of paint colors and layers and layers and finishes. And, yeah. yeah. So like, what is an average helmet? take now hours wise would you guess nowadays yeah i mean they can be upwards of 100 hours really oh yeah 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 there's a and you're still hand taping yeah no there's there's that's all hand done i mean it's really taking something from the design that i do and then being able to accurately translate that analog wise onto a helmet by hand Right. So it's understanding um, scale and, you know, angles and then also being able to mask stuff linearly on a sphere. Right. right, right. So because that's the thing as well. I think sometimes people don't really realize that that's that's not easy. And, you know, there's a reason why some helmets look fantastic and then some helmets don't. Right. Because. It's all those things, you know, that add together to make something be pleasing to the eye, you know. So. What's your process now? Like, do you sketch on paper? Are you using, like, computer design or what do you Yeah, do? so I do everything with Adobe Illustrator. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I'll have a, you know, a client uh, design meeting and we'll kind of go over, you know, things that that they like, you know, as far as style sometimes um colors you know certain details right and i basically bake a cake you know with with those ingredients so i'll take those ingredients and then i'll interpret them in my own style and um that's kind of how we get 
what we got. So, which is pretty cool. You know, it's, it's cool because people allow me to do, to do things the way that I envision them to be done, which is pretty neat. Well, I think, I mean, that's the best relationship with an artist, right? Is like, you have your style. Mm -hmm. I like your style. So here is a helmet. Go nuts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you like what I do and you come to me, then cool. But if you like what somebody else does, I mean, you should kind of go to that person. Right. You know sure. I mean? like, yeah. Don't, don't, don't tell to... me to do somebody else's work. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I've always held, uh, been very, very adamant about that, you know, from day one, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, designers or, or helmet painters out there that that have their style, you know. And right. if you like that person's style, then you need to go to that person and have them do work for you. I mean, that's the way it should be. Right. Well, here's the million dollar question. What do you, how do you describe your style hmm i would say my style is abstract modern clean aggressive colorful um clean and aggressive i like that combination yeah it's not one you often find together no because i feel it has to be for me in my style I, i think something has to be aggressive and it has to be clean and bold and it just even if it's busy it can be clean you know what i mean i see it's all in how you balance the colors and how you balance this the style of the helmet you mm-hmm. know and I think that's that's part of what's fun for me is I don't necessarily have one specific style. I have multiple styles, and I like to use them in different with different clients. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So some clients, when they talk and they explain things to me, I I understand that they're looking for you know style A. And other clients, when I talk to them, okay, they're looking for a little more style B or C or D right. or whatever, you know, it is. Yeah. So it's being able to hear what they're saying and be able to, um, boil it down. And so I can understand what they want. And I mean, seven out of 10 times I knock it out of the park on the first one. So some clients are like, oh, maybe let's change this color. It isn't exactly yeah, I was gonna ask how I was yeah. envisioning it. But, you know, now that I've seen it, because some people can't visualize things that they explain, right. right? Which is fine. Do they come with like helmets as reference oftentimes? Like, oh, I like XYZ's helmet. Can yeah. you do this for me? But in magenta yeah yeah no totally yeah and people do that um you know i'm just again i'm just adamant that yeah i can't copy that but i can i, I gotta can, get me a magenta helmet man. Y- y- <laughs> y- well, you should i mean real men were pink. i have no I mean, idea you know. why i just thought of magenta <laughs> <laughs> i've been kind of, i've been kind of wanting to have a helmet with some pink on it i don't know i think it'd be kind of cool magenta is a dope color it really is you it's know. deeper than you know what could otherwise be considered maybe a little more effeminate. Well, yeah. yeah. For you, I'm just thinking for you. Oh, just for me, not for you. <laughs> I need the more effeminate peak. Thanks, dude. I, <laughs> I appreciate your, your support. Um, so it sounds like your company just kind of grew like a weed almost, like just kind of on its own. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's been an ever-evolving um, thing. And, and I'd really attribute that to just... Uh, educating myself and learning through trial by error and then trying to educate myself by, you know, reading books or watching freaking YouTube videos or, you know, from my beautiful wife, Tiffany, who's, you know, taught me, taught me a lot. I mean, she is much more of a academic than I am. You know, I'm definitely more of a creative. So, you know, sometimes, you know, it's difficult for me to, to be um, super into, you know, reading a book or something like uh, audiobooks are cool. Like I, I like those much more for myself, you know, I can, I can digest those a lot easier, but you know, but it's important. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, I mean, it's important to continue growing. So, right. you know, if, if you keep doing that, all you can do is evolve. So, so you started out as a one man band, obviously mm-hmm. today, Tiffany works with you. Yep. What between, because you've been in business technically how long? Like uh, how old? Just over 10 years. Okay. Com- coming so up on 11. Yeah. were there any times when you had 
multiple people in the business or have you always been sort of like really yeah i mean skeleton crew no so when i first started in 2011 i had um a bookkeeper and um you know that was referenced to me from a friend and um you know and then from her then i had this other bookkeeper that i worked with from felt and then, yeah, I had at one point, I think I had four different employees at the same time, five, five employees at once. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I kind of whittled that back a bit cause it was too much for, for where I was at that point in time. And, um, you know, and then I, I really just, you know, once COVID hit really, we stripped it right back to just us. Yeah. And, um, so now we're, we're on the path to start scaling, which is really exciting because, now that we have all this wealth of knowledge from the last 10 years and all this new education, you know, we've really educated ourselves much better on being able to pick out clients, you mm. know, um, and, and just spot who is a good fit for us. What are and, some of those kind of protocols? Well, it's just listening to the way people approach, you know, us and just seeing if it's a good fit or not. Because mm-hmm. if somebody just comes to us right out of the gate and they're talking about, well, how much does it cost? That's not the, that's probably not a good fit for us. Right. And because if you're looking at it from that aspect, you know, it's my, it's my feeling that you're looking at us as a commodity and you're not looking at us as something um, special, right? You know you're, what I mean? You're designing something unique for them. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. And, and the people that we want to do work with really, um, respect our work and they want to work with us because of who we are mm-hmm. and not necessarily just because we can design a helmet. Right. You know right. what I mean? Cause if, if that's what you're after, if you're just trying to get a quick fix, we're not the place for you. Sure. So we're really trying to cater to somebody that wants a higher level of um, aesthetic, a higher level of design, um, more progressive, you know, uh, design, and and also somebody that wants to work with us and have a fantastic experience. You know, we don't want it necessarily just to be um, another. You know, we do, we're not just another helmet painter, quote unquote. Right, right. And we're really trying to distance ourselves from that term. Um, because really what we are is a made to order bespoke, uh, studio. I mean, design studio. I mean, that's really what we are. I'm sure, you know, my years working at felt, I was a creative director. Mm -hmm. So I built, you know, I created the brand of how the company looked and how the company felt. And so no pun intended. Right. (laughs) But so now being able to take that experience and that knowledge and, you know, being able to apply it to, um, individuals, you know, on a personal basis, it's a very powerful thing, you know? So we, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but we kind of glazed over your departure from felt. I'm like, intrigued. How did that happen? <laughs> like, how did you leave? So basically what had happened with felt was I, I was feeling, I started to feel stagnant, mm. you know, because you know I was creative director. I'd been there for like 13 years and there wasn't really any more room for me to grow. Right. You know, I was at the pinnacle of the department for a long time and there was a lot of things that I wanted to do creatively that I wasn't allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was ways that I wanted to market things that I wasn't allowed to do. You know, there was designs that I wanted to create on bikes that I wasn't allowed to do. Were those budget constraints or like visual cues that like the higher ups didn't care for? Or like, what was that? It was more about, and this is where sales, you know, comes into play when it comes to production. Mm-hmm. So sales in the bicycle industry, they, they want to sell stuff. You know, this might be generalizing, but you know, hear me out. <laughs> they want to sell stuff that's easy to sell. Sure. So they don't want to try to pitch a lime green bike to somebody. They want to sell you a black, blue, or red bike. This is interesting you should bring this up because I was thinking about this the other day Mm -hmm. about how salespeople are hardly salespeople anymore. Yeah, order takers. Like they're just cashiers at the end of the day. Sorry, salespeople, that that offends. (laughs) Well, if it offends you, you're probably good at your job and this doesn't apply to you. Exactly. You know what I mean? So like at the end of the day, it's your coworkers who suck. Yeah. Um, So, but the point I'm trying to make is that like, do you think some of that is, well, 
this is America, right? So we're, we're all about choices. <laughs> so if you, right? So if you shrink down the number of choices you're allowed to make, mm-hmm. thus you're not, you know, um, I don't know. You're not debilitated by decision making. Yeah. So do you, was that part of it for them too? Or they just, or did they not believe in salespeople at the end of the day? Cause let's say, I mean, a bike shop, my first job was in a bike shop selling bikes. Yeah. That's like literally where I cut my teeth on how to sell products. Yeah. So I was the little kid who looked 10, even though I was 15 yeah. selling bikes and child ex- labor excited to do it. Protect your employer. And, uh, <laughs> but generally speaking, maybe bike shops, Maybe aren't highly motivated people. Maybe they are. You know what I mean? It just depends. But like BMX. Yeah. It was our experience that, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. I'm not trying to create drama where there is none. I'm no, just but asking. I think there is. I mean, yeah. I, I think that's a true point. I mean, you know, you'll go to some businesses and th- I mean, everybody, I believe that hears this would, would probably attest to it. Mm. Sometimes you have to deal with people that you don't want to deal with. You know, you go to McDonald's, you know, funny example. If you get a cashier that's having a bad day and they give you a bunch of attitude, you're kind of dealing with individuals, right? So bike shops are kind of like that too. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, I've walked into plenty of bike shop, you know, meanwhile, I've designed all these bikes on the floor. These guys have no idea who I am. Right. And they're giving me attitude like I'm some bum off the street that doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like bike shops and record stores back in the day. Yeah, it's just this this snobby attitude. And it's like, it's so not cool. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to get people into the business that you know, or clients when they come in, you want to, you want to take care of people. You know what I mean? You want to, you don't want people like you were saying earlier, your buddy, you want, you want to educate people. You want to people when they come in to look at a bike or whatever it is, a watch or whatever you want to educate them. And you, if they're in there looking at it, obviously they're interested in it. So why would you turn them away with your attitude? You know, it doesn't totally, make, it doesn't make sense. Right. right. No, a hundred percent. So, but they I obviously mean, have some level of excitement behind the product. Yeah. Right? yeah. So why not so, share it? Exactly. And yeah. you know what? Hey, I love bikes. I work at a bike shop. You love bikes. You here to buy a bike. hundred percent. You know, why don't I teach you a little bit about this mm-hmm. thing? And, send you on your way and hopefully you'll come back and buy tires hopefully you'll come back and get it serviced. right hopefully you'll come back and buy a chain hopefully you'll come back and get your brakes done yeah you know what i mean i mean you know so that's the the car dealership model exactly and you know so but i mean to go back to colors i mean again you know you don't know if you're dealing with somebody that you know really cares if that business is gonna you know sell a bunch more bikes this month or not right so, or if they're really, they really want to work hard to sell this green bike as opposed to, well, just buy this red bike because it's red. And I know, you know, most clients like red bikes. So, yeah. You know, looks fast. Yeah. It looks cool. <laughs> but I think that's the thing it felt uh, that I sometimes was let, you know, off the, off the leash, so to speak. And I was like, look, I believe in this. Let's do this green bike. Or, you know, we had this beach cruiser once and I wanted it to be punk rock, like this punk rock theme with like a tartan seat. And my boss was not into it. I was like, trust me, we're in Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach is all about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that bike flew off the shelves. And he was like, well, okay, you were right. You I just, I just think cool. of uh, No Doubt. Yeah, exactly. Like the pants yeah. that she would wear. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And you know, all the all the punk rock bands and stuff back yeah. in the day. Because when I first moved to California, like, I I kind of became friends with groups of guys, and we were we were going to all these punk shows, and you know, in those early days. And what was the first kind of album fun. you ever bought like, with your with your own money? The oh, music album, album, yeah. album. Um, it was Run DMC. Uh, it was a tape and it, I think it was around 80. I was going to say it has to be a tape. Yeah, it was a tape. Um, God, what year was that? I think that was around 87, 88. Okay. Aerosmith. Yeah. It was, well, Walk my sister way. was always more into like rock and stuff. So yeah. my sister was like into like Def Leppard back then. And, yes. you know, <laughs> hysteria. You know, and such a great album. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because you hear it now, you're like, 
This actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> I heard it at the gym yesterday. Oh, really? I did. Yeah. No, it's funny you hear some of that old 80s music. It's like, yeah, that's pretty good. But um, yeah, that was my first album. Was 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 um was Run DMC and then um Beastie Boys and then that kind of got me. I was always like into hip hop after that. Yeah, rap. yeah, yeah. I was like devout rap guy. That's which cool. Which is really funny. So, well, you said your dad watched F One religiously. Mm-hmm. Were were you into it? Like, had you carried that on? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I watched I watched F One. I mean, there was some years where I kind of fell out of it. And, um, you know, and then I kind of got back into it again. I got heavily back into it again in its current state, I think around 2008, like the end of 2008. Didn't you do a helmet for Esteban Gutierrez? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was 2013 for the Austin Grand how, Prix. Yeah, how did that happen? So I had done a helmet for a client in Mexico Okay. Um, Mexico. I think he was in Mexico City or somewhere down in Mexico, and he was a businessman. Right. And um, he was he, he like backing Esteban or something? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He was like that Interprotectione or whatever that thing you'll see. He sponsors Checo as well, Sergio Perez. Sweet. Yeah. He so had a, he had a good weekend. Yeah. Weekend. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I mean, hey, let's win Monaco, right? So That's insane. Um, so but yeah, good. so he had sponsored him, and it was funny because he had said to me, you know, hey, Brett. You know, I want to get the the best helmet painter to you know paint a F one helmet and blah 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 and you know sometimes you hear people say stuff like that and you're yeah. like yeah okay buddy yeah yeah F1. you're like so do I yeah <laughs> do you know what F one is like <laughs> you know I know that Formula Ford is an F one right. <laughs> you know what I mean so so it was funny that he said that and then sure enough um, you know like a couple weeks later somebody called me that you know worked with Esteban and he's like, Hey, you know, we want to get you to do a helmet for him for, for Austin. And, um, you know, can you do it? And I, it was a very short turnaround time. I only had like two or three weeks to knock it out. So did he tell you, or did they tell you what they wanted on it? Or did they again say go nuts? Yeah. I mean, it was basically, you know, I had to keep his, his layout. So, but I kind of did my little little you know twist on it okay. um but it was his basic layout and then i ended up doing sugar skulls on the whole thing so it was like a sugar skull pattern it was super cool and um but i had done like a few different designs for them and sent them over i think i did like six different designs like one was like a mexican blanket design and oh sure you know like i had serape all, yeah because yeah. they're you know they have so much cool art you know yeah. in mexico and and so I just did all these Mexican themed, you know, art pieces. And then they ended up picking the sugar skull one, which was cool. Oh, and that's, um, that's kind of how that unfolded. So, yeah, no, it was cool. So what racing league do you follow closest? Um, I mean, I watch m- most everything. I mean, you know, we have a lot of clients in uh, SRO, um, you know, GT, you know, World Challenge. Um, a lot of clients in IMSA. Um, yeah, I mean, watch, I watch, so I watch all of that. I watch IndyCar, watch, you know, Formula One. Um, I like watching some of the WEC stuff, like, mm-hmm. you know, Le Mans is really cool. And, yeah. You know, all that other stuff. I, it's funny because I didn't love prototype cars when I first kind of got back into it. I was always like, oh, those things are kind of funky. <laughs> but now it's like, dude, I love, I love um, like LMP1 cars. And, yeah. You know, this new hyper thing that they're going to be bringing out here pretty quick. Have you watched any e-racing? <sighs> yeah, e-racing. I don't know, man. <laughs> dude, I, I can't get into it because it just there's no sound. It. Like, it's yeah. so weird. And I just that, think like, it's... high wine. Yeah, and it's just janky. I mean, really? You're going to change cars halfway through the race? Like, they really <laughs> need to work on that. Like, I, I believe that ultimately that's what it's going to be. Right. But they really need to work out that bug of having to change the car. For me, anyway. I think it's, you know, and I think that's going to come with battery technology or whatever. However, they end up, you know, powering them or figuring out yeah prolong the lives of these batteries but i mean it, it you know obviously with teslas they're they're getting better and better at, at figuring that stuff out you know the cars now compared to five ten years ago are much better well it's kind of like the opposite of le mans right 
yeah instead of swapping drivers you swap cars <laughs> yeah yeah and it's just weird i mean because one car i mean even though you set two cars up the exact same um, sometimes one car doesn't handle the same right right but something can be different with a chassis somehow mm-hmm. and it just doesn't handle the same so right, i mean right. i don't know if that's much of a issue for these teams and drivers because you know obviously i've never raced it all right so you've talked about how your business has changed a little bit right like you've gone from like just you to a small team to scale back. By the way, you moved to Vegas. Yeah. Right. So you're in Orange County, California. Yeah. For was that COVID motivated? Was that related to COVID? Was it? No, we did that. um, We did that in early or sorry, late 2018. Um, Mm. So mid 2018, we were starting to look at, what operation costs were in Orange County and for this type of business and what I was charging at the time, Orange County was just not sustainable. Right. You know, I mean, to rent a, to rent a place there, you know, the shop costs, you know, housing costs, um, you know, employee costs. Um, it's just super expensive. Right. And so I think that's the thing. Moving to Vegas, we we just kind of recognized, hey, if we want to really um, start start expanding this and scaling this business, we need to kind of lower our overhead exponentially, and then be able to kind of strategically, you know, charge more, and then grow a team around us that can help us kind of get to that next level. Right. You know? Yeah. So I think that's the thing. This move out here has been fantastic for us to kind of re hit that reset button. Sure. And, um, you know, and COVID, you know, quite honestly was, it was great for our business because it allowed us to kind of slow down, kind of reassess, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to do this properly? Mm. You know, how are we going to grow? How are we going to, you know, place our still place ourselves strategically in the business and then how, or in the industry. And then how are we going to separate ourselves from everybody? And because I don't think that we want to separate ourselves specifically through design. Cause I think that's not really the way you do it, but also in client experience and how we actually scale the business, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, we want to start doing some products and, you know, we want to start doing some stuff to, to take us to another level. And, I understand um, that you're changing, but has the industry changed much as far as, cause I mean, I guess you're, your hero product is a helmet, right? Or or at least the art that goes on the helmets. Yeah. Yeah. For now. I mean, yeah. So I think that's the thing. I think the industry is changing, but I think like most industries change can be slow. You know, you look at the golf industry and it's like, what a, what a freaking steamship that is. I mean, it's taken so long for people to accept, you know, younger fashion and, right. you know, cool stuff. And like, you know, Ricky's people like Ricky Fowler obviously helped that. Right. You know, but I mean, um, it, it, I think motorsports is similar in ways like they kind of have a stuck way of thinking about things mm-hmm. and a stuck way of approaching things. But we're here to change that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm excited about that. And it's, it's, it takes time and it's going to take time because you're really re-educating people on who we are and what value we bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, they're experienced at a different, um, you know, design studio is most definitely not going to be the same experience they have at our design studio. Sure, yeah. So, and that, that's what we want. We want it to be very special for people. You know, and uh, so I can't, I, I don't want to get too far into it. Right, right. Yeah, I got, I got some trade secrets. That's good. <laughs> no, and as you should, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, everybody has to um, do them, you know, do you, boo-boo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're being very um, committed to our vision, you right. know, and, and, and holding steady on that. You mentioned golf. What got you into golf? 
So, which is how we met, obviously, is through golf. But yeah, like how which is wh- funny. who got you into golf, or like how did that start? So the first time I ever played golf, well, I would think I was around sixteen, back with all my motocross buddies and <laughs> my one friend um, at the time. Their parents had like a little vacation home somewhere south around Bellingham, Washington. Okay, and at that uh, little little summer co- um, summer cottage place, they had a golf course. And so, you know, we went out there one weekend and we were literally just hammered. I mean, drinking a beer hole. And I think if my memory serves me correctly, I hold out from a, on like a par four. I hold out from like 170 yards that day, <laughs> which was really funny. When you so think you're like, it. I'm playing this for the rest yeah, of my I was life. Like, Fuck, this is cool, right? <laughs> I was like, this is easy, you know, golf's easy. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I've always been athletic, you know, and I've always enjoyed different things. And, and so I played that one day and I never played again for years and years and years. And then it was after, um, God, what year was it? I think it was 2006 when I started playing golf and I got serious. Like I was like, I'm going right. to do this. Right, right. And uh, so one of my friends, um, him and I both started playing around the same time. So we started going all the time in Orange County, you know, going to like, um, there was uh, this golf course in Irvine called uh, Rancho San Joaquin. Okay. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like a little local course right by the university by uci yeah and um really crappy grass but i mean it was fun you know we would go out there and then there was this mats at newport beach this place right under john wayne where planes take off there there's a little par three executive course there oh yeah 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 Yeah, so we would go there you know on like on the weeknights you know and go play around in the dark with the lights on yeah i was gonna say they had the lights yeah it was super fun though i mean we had a blast and so it's the best yeah and i just you know i read some tiger woods books and (laughs) you know ben hogan's you know book and you know a few different things and i really educated myself on it and i just taught myself and you know i got pretty decent that's amazing yeah so i don't know and i started keeping a handicap and i got down i think i got down to like a 12 okay um but then you know i stopped kind of going as much and you know and then you know i try to go now whenever i can but you know i'm definitely definitely not playing like a 12 right now (laughs) (laughs) not like my beautiful wife yeah i didn't i didn't have a great round today either yeah Got a birdie though. It's another story. Got a birdie in a few in a few pars after not playing a playing six months. So that's I'll, great. I'll take that. Yeah, man, it was super fun. And well, and is there it. anything else you want to promote or talk about? God, I don't know. Not really. I mean, um, you know, just really. Yeah, I mean, I just really want um, want to say that you know I I'm here to or we're here to really change change the the game you know change the helmet game and i think it's already starting to happen you know you're starting to see some you know somebody like lewis hamilton um like this weekend you know he he uh, collaborated with daniel arsham mm-hmm. which was pretty cool and so i think you're going to start to see helmets go off in a more dynamic way and be approached more like a piece of art right in, instead of like this is a helmet you paint green blue and red on it and you do this and this is what everybody else does and this is how it is and that's going to change and um i'm excited to kind of be there for that change and help you know be one of the people that that really push that yeah you know and and that's exciting that's exciting to me i meant to ask you earlier what like how often does somebody like lewis get i mean yes i feel like he has a different helmet every race yeah, well, that was the thing that I learned when I did Esteban's helmet. I mean, these F1 guys, I mean, they'll get, I think it's upwards of 20 helmets a year. Yeah, I mean, there's 20 races. Yeah. Well, I guess now there's more. Yeah, but, I mean, they'll, so they typically have to have two helmets for a race, right? So they have a helmet and a backup helmet. And some, sometimes uh, that backup helmet's set up for rain or whatever. So, um, I didn't know that. How do you set a helmet up for rain? So they'll put like a special shield on it sometimes. So it doesn't fog up. Yeah. Like I've even heard some of these teams have like special heated shields, you know, that, that are like heated instead of just dual pane. 
Um, wow. I haven't seen one personally, but I've heard that, that that is the way it is. But yeah, they'll have like a backup helmet. So if anything happens to their helmet, they have another one just in case. Because right. I mean, imagine the millions that teams are spending to be there. I mean, you want your driver not to be able to go out because of his helmet. I mean, it's right. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much the deal. But nowadays, I mean, that's the thing too. Like companies are starting to do water slide transfer um graphics on their these f1 helmets just because it's lighter as well so say like charles leclerc's helmet that helmet's not even painted it's actually decals it's a graphic yeah so like a like a vinyl wrap you'd put on a car well like water slide transfers so say like on a model model car or a model boat oh you know? right right like those the tiny t- thin yeah super thin, super thin it's, yeah, yeah. you know you stick in water and it you know it lifts off the backing and then they lay it on the on the helmet but then they're they're cut into shapes that are able to um, form to the helmet, and also made with a material that that bends maybe more than those old you know crappy mm-hmm. decals did yeah, on a yeah, model yeah. car. Um, so yeah, so that's the thing. Things are starting to change, so we're going to start to see, I think, a, a lot of change in this industry. So we want to be there for that. So yeah. Sweet, man. Well, thanks so much for the time. This was super fun. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And um, we'll have to do it again in the future. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see how we're doing. Thanks, Brett. All righty, man. Thank you. All right, cool. Hey, guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard Age podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.